You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. As we heard on the news, the US National Guard has been deployed to Minneapolis as protests continued for a third night over the death of an unarmed black man. George Floyd died on Monday after a police officer knelt on his neck in the street. A Minneapolis Police Department central precinct building was set on fire during the disturbances. The officer involved in Monday's incident and three others have all been sacked, but Mr Floyd's family want them to face murder charges. Early this morning, the US President Donald Trump tweeted, Any difficulty and we will assume control, but when the looting starts, the shooting starts. This report from Tommy Meskell. We got gunshots. We got gunshots, guys. People run from what sounds like gunshots at the burning police station in Minneapolis. The inferno has become a focal point of violent protests, which have now run into a third night. As the building was set alight, fire officers looked on, trying to figure out the best way to respond. We have to really consider the safety of our firefighters uh, in, in those areas, so we're being very, very cautious. Uh, I know we are going to make, and I know I'm going to make an assessment of that situation around the third precinct building. And if we can go in and attempt to uh, uh, make a fire attack in that structure, we will. 46-year-old George Floyd died on Monday. The unarmed black man lay on the ground as an officer knelt on his neck. His final words, I can't breathe. They were the same words chanted by protesters. The demonstration has seen looting, cars set alight and at least one instance of a car driven into a crowd. That's despite an early plea from the vice president of the city council, Andrea Jenkins, for calm. I want to remind all of the people that are in the streets protesting, you have every absolute right to be angry, to be upset, to be mad, to express your anger. However, you have no right to perpetrate violence and harm on the very communities that you say that you are standing up for. But divisions run deep. At a rally yesterday, Al Sharpton, a civil rights activist, addressed the crowd. There are probable cause right now. You have a deceased person. You have a tape showing how he was deceased. You have a tape showing the other three police did nothing to prevent it. Then they should tell these four police what they tell all of us in the hood. Tell it to the judge. Gwen Carr, whose son Eric Garner died in 2014 after being placed in a banned police chokehold, said this case is akin to salt in an old wound. As you know, this happened to me almost six years ago. And this is just opening up an old wound, pouring salt into it. They keep coming into, the, the police officers come into our neighborhoods. They, they brutalize, they terrorize, they murder our children, and we have done nothing. I can't breathe! The U.S. National Guard has been deployed to Minneapolis. Yesterday, the senior federal prosecutor in the state of Minnesota, Erica McDonald, said her team had made the investigation its top priority. But the violence continues, the fires burn, and the anger shows no sign of abating. Tommy Meskell reporting there. From tomorrow, if you arrive in Ireland from any other country, you will, by law, have to fill in a form called the COVID-19 Passenger Locator Form, saying where you can be contacted. You'll also be asked to self-isolate for 14 days. The Minister for Health, Simon Harris, says making it mandatory to self-isolate is tricky, legally. Ryanair's Group CEO, Michael O'Leary, says the quarantine guidance is unfair, ineffective and unimplementable and should be removed. But Simon Harris says the measures, while extraordinary, are necessary in a time of public health crisis. I do disagree the measures are utterly ineffective. But let me start by saying, look, the government has done a great job, the health authorities have done a great job. I mean, Monday was a great day for Ireland where we had zero deaths from covid But Ireland, like many other European countries, is now emerging out of the lockdown period. 
and we're emerging much slower and in a much more conservative and uh, restrictive manner than most other European countries. We can and should do more. It's time to get the economy moving. Well, the current measures will be in place until the 18th of June when they'll be reviewed. Uh, and the Minister does agree that the implementation of self-isolation will be tricky legally. And um, These are simply measures to try and prevent the virus from being imported back into the country. But they're not. I mean, with respect, the Minister is imposing an ineffective self-isolation if you're arriving in from some European countries who have a lower R rate than Ireland. And yet there's no... Uh, self-isolation if you arrive in from the UK which has a much higher R rate than Ireland so we're requiring people to quarantine if you come in from countries that have performed better than Ireland but no quarantine if you come from the country that has performed worse and if well, you look people, at sorry, just to, just, sorry just to correct you Michael Leary people from yep. Great Britain not necessarily Northern Ireland will be asked to self-isolate for 14 days not true you can come across the border of Northern Ireland therefore there's no quarantine and no, also from, the whole but from Britain you will be, from Britain you will be asked to self-isolate the concept of a quarantine is completely ineffective if you don't quarantine people at the airport. Once you allow them onto Dublin bus, once you allow them onto the taxis, if you have a coronavirus positive person, then the infection spreads. A quarantine that gets imposed only after you've used public transport to get to your eventual destination is not a quarantine. It is simply political game play. It's quite clear the, the scientific experts across both from the European Centre for Disease Control and EASA have allowed people to move again. All of the Italian countries are lifting their travel restrictions. They're removing ineffective quarantines at a time when Ireland is imposing an ineffective quarantine, but they're doing so using face masks. That's what Ireland should be doing. It's time to go back flying. Ryanair would be flying from the 1st of July to countries all over Europe, but we require you to wear face masks. Um, in a letter from uh, on May the 8th, uh, Dr Tony Hoolan, the Chief Medical Officer here, said the principal public health objective of the National Public Health Advisory Team's advice is to eliminate, in as far as is possible, all non-essential travel. In particular, NFIT is concerned that Irish residents may be actively planning to resume travel overseas in the near term for tourism purposes. His priority is to try and keep the virus out of the country. Well, I mean, it's a bit late. The virus is already in the country, but it's being successfully tackled by the government and by the health authorities. But the point we're making, that was May the 8th. We're nearly now at the end of May. Italy has opened up for tourism, removed all travel restrictions. Spain has opened up for tourism, all removed all travel restrictions. We're going back flying on the 1st of July. And yet at that moment of opening, Ireland reintroduces or introduces an ineffective quarantine, which has no basis in science, no basis in health measures. And all we're saying is all of the science across the airlines, across Europe and across the, uh, the world says wear face masks. That's the effective protection. Useless quarantines or ineffective quarantines don't work. And we're also calling today, by the way, if there was a more use of face masks, things like hairdressers could now open up before the end of June instead of waiting until the 20th of July. The government needs to explain why Ireland, with one of the best records against in tackling the COVID-19 virus, and they deserve great credit for that, now is imposing the most stringent lockdowns of any European country. We are being overly conservative. It is time to reward the Irish people with relaxation of these measures. We would call for, instead of three-week gaps, two-week gaps, and straight away remove an ineffective, an ineffective quarantine. And a more liberal use of face masks would allow things like hairdressers to reopen and would allow the, air, uh, the people to start travelling on holidays, which, by the way, they will do from the 1st of July when Ryanair goes back flying. On the issue of masks, just want you to hear what was said on prime time last night. Here's the head of surgery at the Matter Hospital, Professor Ronan Cahill. And that has implications for things like airlines who really are talking a lot about masks at the moment because uh, if you're just focused on just one view of, the, of the, how masks work, you, you won't see that horizontal plume. You wouldn't like to be sitting beside so, someone who's, who's wearing a mask and breathing, speaking or coughing. Although we can have research that shows this stuff, we really need experts in each industry to come forward and make sense of it for their own area. The research can inform it, but the responsibility of how to use it rests with each of those individual experts. Michael O'Leary? Couldn't agree more. The experts have already come forward in the airline industry. The European Centre for Disease Control, the ECDC, and EASA, the European Safety Agency, 10 days ago published a comprehensive document of safety measures which allows airlines to go back flying. What do they recommend? Face masks, temperature controls, and hand sanitization. That's why the airlines have been flying in China now for more than two months. 
How many cases of COVID did they have in China yesterday? Seven. China's back moving again. Ireland is, needs to get back moving again. This idea that we have this plan set out in early May, which was a different time, that doesn't allow things like hairdressers to reopen until the 20th of July, that says people sh- arriving in from Europe should ineffectively quarantine only after they've used public transport, need to be reviewed. The government needs to lead this country. Advisors advise, ministers decide. It's time we got our ministers to start making decisions open up the hairdressers, and certainly as far as air travel is concerned, Ryanair's going back flying on the 1st of July. We have a 1,000 flights a day, and people, Irish families, are already booking well-earned holidays abroad in Spain and Portugal and Greece, which are open for business, while Ireland is reintroducing an ineffective uh, quarantine. Yes, but your advice is based on your priority, which is Ryanair. The advice the government no, is following. The advice the uh, government is following, if you let me finish my point, is based on public health advice, which is in, in the interest of the public health of the population. You couldn't be more wrong. Our advice is based on the comprehensive medical advice produced by the European Centre for Disease Control, the EU Safety Medical and Safety Agency, the Uber boss. They say go back flying, go back flying, but with passengers and. Uh, cabin crew wearing face masks, everybody wearing face masks in terminal buildings where social distancing isn't possible. That is the science. That is the advice. It's free, it's safe to go back flying. And by the way, if this government made a more liberal use of face masks, you could readily reduce from two metres to one metre, achieve physical separation and allow things like hairdressers to go back to work as well. It is time we went back to work. The science supports the airlines going back flying, not even on the 1st of July going back flying in mid-June. That's why Spain is already opening up. Spain, has, which had a much worse COVID record than Ireland, has removed all travel restrictions. So has um, Italy. So has Greece. The Irish families are booking to go abroad and they can do in perfect safety, fully supported by the science of the ECDC, the European Centre for Disease Control and IAFA. When will you refund people whose Ryanair flights have been cancelled? Continuing to do it on a daily basis. At the moment, we have a record backlog of uh, refunds. We have about three months of flight cancellations imposed on us by governments. We have a total liability of about 1.2 billion. As of the end of this week, we'll be about a third of the way through that. We have about 400 million has already been refunded through refunds, vouchers, and free moves to customers, and we keep eliminating or working our way through the backlog. But it is very difficult. Our long don't return to full-time work until the 1st of June. Okay. We don't have the full refund complement of team in place. Could it take up to a year to refund everyone? No, I mean, I think it will take... I mean, it's likely to take anything between three to six months to complete the job, but a lot of that depends. We think an awful lot of our passengers who are waiting for refunds will happily take free flight moves once they know we're back flying safely. But for those who don't July, want to fly, for those who would like their money back? They will get their money back... There's no issue over them refunding their money. They'll just have to wait because, well, sometime over the next three to six months. That's Ryanair's Michael O'Leary. The lifting of restrictions of COVID-19 in Britain yesterday was completely overshadowed by the ongoing controversy involving Boris Johnson's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings. He and his wife and young son travelled hundreds of kilometres from London to Durham when she had symptoms of COVID-19. They also spent a day sightseeing at a local castle to test his eyesight, apparently. There was considerable public anger at his actions, with many people on social media describing the brutally painful sacrifices that they have had to make in order to follow the government's lockdown rules. Well, at a news conference in Downing Street's garden yesterday evening, Dominic Cummings was asked if he had any regrets. Uh, no, I don't, I don't regret um, what, what I did. As I, as I said, I think um, you know, reasonable people may well disagree about how I thought about what to do in in, 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 the, in, the, in these circumstances but I think that I think that what I did was actually reasonable in these um, in these circumstances um, in terms of the rules I think that the um, I think that the, you know, the rules made clear that if you're dealing with small children then that could be that can be exceptional circumstances and I think that the situation that I was in, uh, was exceptional circumstances, and I think that the way that I dealt with it um, was the least risk to everybody concerned. And he was also asked if he had considered resigning. No, I have not offered to resign. Um, did you ever consider it? it? No, I did not. I have not considered it. 
um, as, I, as I said, I think, uh, you know, I, th I think it's reasonable to say um, that other people would have behaved differently uh, in different ways in, the, in this whole situation. But as I stress, I was trying to balance lots of lots of competing things. That's Dominic Cummings there. Well, we are joined now by a former advisor to the former British Prime Minister, Theresa May, Joey Jones, who's currently strategic advisor at the Cicero Consultants Group. Joey, thanks for joining us again on Morning Ireland. The Cummings news conference yesterday in Downing Street, an unelected advisor giving a news conference at number 10, extraordinary in itself. Has it done enough to quell the anger, do you think, of Conservative backbenchers, first of all? I think it's halted the momentum, but it hasn't reversed the the, the momentum of uh, the the media narrative and the and the criticism and the political criticism that he and of course uh, Boris Johnson are now intimately bound up uh, bound into. I think the ambition was to push back to allow the government to restore itself to the front foot to take forward a narrative about lifting uh, lockdown, but instead, particularly because it really came too late, it came after days of uh, obfuscation and uh, a failure to answer questions on the part of the government, uh, positions have become too entrenched. People have basically made their minds up about Dominic Cummings. And for all that, I think that there is a slight, um, a, a greater degree of, of sympathy uh, for the, the strain that he and his fam family were under that flows from a, a clearer understanding of the, uh, of the situation. In terms of whether he was right or wrong, uh, positions are entrenched. So we find ourselves in a bit of a stalemate, which is a real problem for the government. What do you think the public's response is at the moment? Has it done anything to quell their anger? Um, for those people who felt that he was in the wrong, I don't think that very many will have been persuaded by uh, by, by the arguments that, that he laid out. So uh, I, I think that, you know, you, you choose your side of the fence and, and stick to it. And the problem from his point of view is that his great value to Boris Johnson has always been that he could reach out beyond the Westminster bubble and he could ex he could understand better, I think, than, you know, very, very many of us in, in, in Westminster what the wider British public was thinking. Well, that knack has deserted him uh, at the moment because he thinks or he thought that this was something that could be confined to a minor um, media kerfuffle uh, in Westminster. But, but it has abundantly cut through and there's real confusion and real anger about the way in which he is perceived to have uh, played fast and loose with his own rules. Yes, has he shown himself to be actually part of the elite, part of that inner circle that we believed, we understood that he loathed? Well, that would be hugely, uh, I mean, that would be hugely frustrating for, for him. I, th I, think, I think one should not forget that although we all know the name Dominic Cummings and, uh, I mean, there have been, you know, there, there was a docudrama made about him, uh, of course, during the Leave campaign where, in which he was played by Benedict Cumberbatch, but he's not been a household name by any means. I think if you went out onto the street, metaphorically, obviously, you can't do that right at the moment, but after, you know, 100 people... Who, who's Dominic Cummings, I reckon that a large majority of them last week wouldn't have known. Now they really do know. And the problem is that they, they know also that he's Boris Johnson's right-hand man. And uh, I've never seen a single advisor so critically important to a prime minister and at a point of such great jeopardy for him and, uh, and for the nation. It means the stakes are incredibly high for Boris Johnson, who must be feeling very vulnerable because you live by the sword, uh, you die by the sword with, uh, when, when it comes to working with Dominic Cummings. Why has Boris Johnson spent such considerable political capital keeping him by his side, Joey? Well, he's been a massive support to him uh, since he came into Downing Street. Um, he, he weathered the storms of a parliament that was at, uh, at his throat uh, and managed to secure a thumping election victory as well. So there's a lot for Boris Johnson to feel grateful to, Boris, uh, to Dominic Cummings for. Um, but I think that it's very dangerous to become so dependent on one individual. I've never seen that before. Uh, it leaves him in a situation where he can't really do without him because there's no there's no plan B there's no backup there's nobody else who could step into the breach and that actually that was one of the elements that came through strongly in the news conference is that Dominic Cummings clearly felt that without him at the helm then we as a nation
nation were in big, big trouble. And that's why he felt it was so important for him to come back uh, and, and go to work so soon after being uh, apparently sick with, uh, with COVID-19. But I don't think it's a great situation for any of us to be so reliant on one man. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Joey Jones, Strategic Advisor to the Cicero Consultants Group. Well, when you go down to the woods this summer, things may be a bit different. Quilcha is planning to convert nine of its forests in the Dublin mountains to recreational use. Amy Ford, a journalist with the Irish Farmers Journal and Karen Woods from Quilcha join us now to tell us more. Amy, I'll come to you first. What's this going to mean for users of the Dublin mountains? Yeah, good morning, Samantha. So, um, Quilter are changing their um, forests in the Dublin mountains for uh, to recreational use rather than um, commercial use over the next um, over the summer, basically. And they said it's soon to transform the Dublin mountains. So, the, ni- the nine mountains um, include Ticknock, uh, Ballyedmond, uh, Ballyedmond Duff, even, and um, the other one. Carrick Gullen, uh, there's and a few of them there. There's Massey's so, Wood, the Hellfire Club crew. They're all really popular spots with walkers, bikers, that kind of thing. Um, what's This has been a long time coming. Um, there's been a lobby for, for a number of years for, for, for this to happen. What will it mean for users of the mountains? Yeah, so basically they are converting it to recreational use so, um, and they're going to plant continuous cover forestry in parts. Um, so that basically means that they'll have both broadleaves and conifers growing side by side um, so that they can still clear fell uh, the conifers and then still have a cover of forestry. So biodiversity-wise, it'll be a lot more biodiversity-friendly and I suppose in the context of everything these days, basically, which is everything's to be, you know, more environmentally friendly, more biodiversity friendly. Um, it'll probably look aesthetically a bit better um, rather than conifers the whole way. Um, so, look, it, it promises to look, excuse me, just be more um, recreational for uh, users. About, you know, 600,000 people visit these forests every year. Um, so it, it should be a, a game changer, really. OK, and Karen Woods from Quilcheck, explain why Quilcheck have made this decision. So... These forests are a wonderful resource on Dublin's doorstep um, given their popularity and proximity to the city. It was time to push people and nature much higher up the agenda. So there'll be significant benefits for nature. We're going to be creating beautiful, rich, diverse forests for wildlife and vibrant, healthy forests so important for public health and well-being in the long term. And does this mean that the, the felling of trees completely stops in this area? And what impact is that going to have on your business? So, no, we'll still be, um, there will be forest operations um, to the untrained eye. It might look like normal forest management, but we're using the continuous cover forestry approach where we just fell individual or small groups of trees to allow regeneration. And in other areas, we'll be removing small areas of, re- of spruce and replanting them with native woodland species like Scots pine, birch, rowan, oak and holly. And is this likely to be something that will be replicated elsewhere around the country? So given the proximity of these forests to Dublin, the real value we see in these forests is not just timber. The value is in the biodiversity, the recreation, the health and well-being of the public. And these are the values we want to maximise with this project. OK, Karen Woods from Quilcha and Amy Ford from the Irish Farmers Journal. Thank you. We've known for some time that more than half of those who have died with the coronavirus here had been living in nursing homes. This morning, two reports provide more insight into the scale of this tragedy. A study published by the Department of Health says that while comparisons can be difficult, by international standards, Ireland has had a high number of deaths in homes. Meanwhile, a HSE report published by the Irish Times underlines the impact the pandemic has had in homes and other residential centres. It details more than 1,000 deaths in 167 facilities. In one County Kildare home, 35 people lost their lives. Joining us is Irish Times reporter Jack Horgan-Jones. Jack, tell us about this report. Who compiled it and how recent is it? So the report was compiled for internal HSE use and it's accurate to Tuesday of this week. And as you said in your intro, it shows 
the devastating impact of this global virus but on a much more local level it shows how in detail the the virus accessed dozens of of nursing homes and other residential facilities up and down the country a total of 167 nursing homes reporting deaths in this in this uh, in this HSE report um, and it's a problem that as he said we've known the size of it before but not the shape of it, not the precise shape of it. And what we see coming from these figures is a, a global view of what we only had in snapshot form beforehand. We knew of Delgan House and Dundalk where there were uh, over to, over over 20 deaths. We knew of St. Mary's, uh, the, the HSE facility in the Phoenix Park where there were over 20 deaths as well. But we can now see the precise figures for deaths of 167 homes around the country. So it does give that universal view. As you say, some of the homes where there have been a considerable number of deaths, like St. Mary's and like Dalgan House, they've been in the news, but others have not. Others have not. And, and it, what's one of the interesting things is when you look at the, the figures in the HSE report, actually the, the top three uh, homes with the highest number of deaths, none of those have been in the, in the news before. Um, and one of the interesting things is that when we contacted some of these homes is they actually, they said our own internal figures don't, don't match the HSE ones. And, and the likely reason for that is because the HSE counts both confirmed cases of COVID-19 where there has been uh, COVID-19 listed on the death certificate of somebody but also probable cases and probable cases is a new criteria that was introduced when it comes to counting the total death toll from COVID-19 in the country around a month ago and it just means that effectively a doctor has to say that they suspect um, that that COVID-19 was a contributing factor to the death of this person. Right, so I'm looking at some of those statistics. Rivale Nursing Home, Leakslip, County Kildare, 35 deaths. Tara Winthrop Private Clinic, Swords, Dublin, 29. The Marymount Care Centre in Lucan in Dublin, 28. It's hard, isn't it, to get to grips with the impact of 35 deaths in one home. I mean, the scale of the tragedy there and elsewhere is just enormous. The scale is enormous, and and talking to some of the care homes yesterday when we were when we were researching this piece, what what really hit home is the fact that you know obviously each death is an individual tragedy for the the person concerned who has passed away, and obviously for their family, but that the people who work in these homes, the people who tended for these individuals not only in the last days of their lives but often for several months or indeed years with their residents in the home beforehand they're they're massively affected the people who ran these homes are massively affected as well and and it brings home at a very human level how whole communities uh, particularly the communities that are that are focused around care homes are impacted by COVID-19 as it has worked its way in a rather terrifying uh, manner through uh, through the, the the residential and care homes in the state. And is it fair to say that most of those at the top of this list, that they're mostly private homes? That's true. Yeah. So uh, when you look at the, the, the kind of the 10 homes where the most deaths have occurred, nine of them are uh, privately run. Uh, and and the, just the St. Mary's in the Phoenix Park is the only HSE facility there. Now, I, I don't think that's necessarily a comment on the quality of care that's provided in, in private homes. It's It's actually broadly in keeping with the structure of the elder care sector in Ireland, which is largely provided, I think it's around 80% of care homes are run by the private sector. So you would expect the majority of, of deaths to have occurred in private settings, as opposed to you know split evenly between private settings and HSE run institutions. Mm, what this does yet, or get, yet again is underline that there have really been two stories here over the past couple of months. One about the virus in the wider community and the other about the loss of life in nursing homes and other care facilities. It certainly does, and so does so does the other story that that RTE are reporting this morning. I mean, the uh, the we have heard at NEFET briefings, NEFET media briefings in in recent weeks that the the virus in the community is largely under control and um, largely suppressed is the term that that they that they uh, use. But clearly, for a long time, particularly during late March into April and into indeed May, the 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 virus was laying waste to to populations in nursing homes and obviously affecting healthcare workers who who worked in those facilities as well. And that 
that's what you can see in these figures. You can see also that they, they mirror to a large degree the, the geographic spread of cases. You know, there, there's a large concentration, the top three homes all either in Dublin or in the Dublin uh, commuter belt. And, and of, of the 167, the majority really are either in Dublin or in neighbouring counties. And there's just a sprinkling across the border, very few in the west and a couple in the south. So you can see those national trends coming through in these figures as well when it comes to the geographic spread. Jack Horgan-Jones, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Jack Horgan-Jones there of the Irish Times. The deaths of 17 more people from the virus were reported yesterday. There was also an increase in the number of people admitted to hospital with COVID-19 infection and needing intensive care. Health authorities say it's too early yet to gauge the effect of the first phase of the easing of restrictions, which came into effect 10 days ago. The Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan, said now is not the time to make any changes to the current restrictions that are in place. We're still one week since we started to ease restrictions. We've reported 73 cases today in, in one day, which we, we would now regard as a small number of cases. It's less than 100. When we introduced the measures in terms of schools, uh, the, the, the closure of schools, the, the, the um, visitation restrictions in terms of nursing homes, we had a total number of cases in the country up to that point of 43 in total. So we've 73 cases today uh, and I don't think it's the time for us now a week into measures to start widespread advocacy for change across a whole range of measures that we know have actually worked in terms of keeping us here. We need to hold with the measures that we know are working. That's the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan. Jim O'Callaghan is Fianna Fáil's Justice Spokesperson. He's with us now. Jim O'Callaghan, good morning. Good morning. You disagree. Why? Well, I don't disagree with Dr Houlihan's advice. That is his advice. But I think the government needs to recognise that it needs to take into account other factors when the government is making the decision as to whether or not to shift it from two metres to one metres. And when you look at the other factors... I think they are persuasive in trying to convince government that we should move to one metres. First of all, if you look at what the World Health Organization and the European Centre for Disease Protection and Control are saying, they recommend one metre. Secondly, we can see, notwithstanding the very upsetting figures yesterday, that the spread of the disease has significantly decreased in our country. And there are significant parts of the country where there are no new cases materialising. And third, we know that in the early stages of the disease in Ireland, the recommendation and the advice given to government was that one metre was sufficient. And I'm concerned about the ongoing impact, Gavin, that the lockdown and the measures are having on wide varieties of people. And I also think we need to take into account the impact it's having on our economic and social structures. And because of that, I think the government, don't criticise Dr. Holland, he gives advice, but I think that the government needs to take these other factors into account when it's balancing all the evidence and coming to a decision that government makes. But the virus has an incubation of two weeks and uh, it'll be, uh, we're, we're, we're not even two weeks into the first period of relaxing restrictions. We don't know the effect it's had yet. Why not wait until this period is over to make a decision? Tony Hoolan is concerned, as he said there, that increasing the dis- or sorry, reducing the distance that we keep away from people will increase the spread of the disease. Why, why take that risk? Well, no matter what we do in, re- in our response to uh, COVID-19, there's going to be a risk involved. And we have to do is what we have to do is what the Italian Prime Minister stated, that we have to take a calculated risk. And there's always going to be a risk involved in this. And most likely when restrictions are removed, there will be a spike in terms of the numbers. But we have to take other factors into account. Like when you look at the purpose of the lockdown initially, the whole purpose of it was to ensure that our intensive care units were not overwhelmed in the same way as they were in Italy. It was never the intention of the lockdown that the purpose of it was to stop people getting sick or to stop the people get catching the virus. Now, oh. obviously, we don't want people to catch the virus, but I think we need to recognise that we are being exceptionally cautious uh, in the advice that we are following here. And I don't criticise Dr. Holland. It's his job as a public health advisor to give advice, but government must take other factors into account. And when you look at the two-metre, one-metre dispute, you can see that what I would say is that the science doesn't justify that distinction being put in place.
But the advice of the chief medical officer is that it should be maintained. He says that's the guideline. He says that's his advice. You feel other advice should be taken, yes? I, I fully respect the advice the chief medical officer gives. You just feel it should be like, overridden? I think government needs to take into account other factors. Like in fairness to Dr. Holhan, he's not the person who's making these decisions in cabinet. He advises government about the public health issues and public health advice. But there are other factors that have to be taken into account, such as the impact that the ongoing restrictions are having on young people, the elderly, our mental health, domestic violence, people with non-COVID illnesses, and our economy. And our economy isn't just about money, it's about ensuring that we have a proper society in place, that we can look after vulnerable people in society. So I think we need to, the government needs to take other factors into account as well. And when you look at the, I suppose, the phases for lifting the lockdown, ours extend out until the 10th of August. If you look at Spain, indeed, if you look initially, they're going to be lifted fully by June. I think we need to recognise that, you know, we can't go back to situations where we're going to have large congregating crowds together. But I do think government needs to be alive to the fact that we need to expedite the lifting of the restrictions and we need to recognise that, you know, telling people that they won't be finished until the 10th of August is not something that reflects the dynamic changes that are happening in this process. Jim O'Callaghan, Finnefall Justice Spokesperson, thank you for speaking to us. Four men are being questioned in Garda stations in the Midlands on suspicion of being involved in a hit team. Guns and ammunition were seized when a car and a van were stopped in County Offaly yesterday. For more now, we can talk to our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds. Paul, those arrests... <laughs> Sorry, it's a, a very serious story, but we, ha- we have a bit of an accompaniment there somewhere. Um, these arrests... Background, background accompaniment. These arrests have been attracting a lot of attention. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, there's four people still in custody. They're still being questioned. Uh, Their periods of detention were extended uh, for another 24 hours. Um, Basically, this is a security and intelligence operation. Uh, Security and intelligence investigates serious organised crime, along with the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, but also subversive crime. And they're clearly working on intelligence. Armed officers from the emergency response unit uh, were called out um, and uh, very early yesterday morning, about half, uh, tw- half past midnight, they intercepted a car and a van uh, and in the town, just outside the town of Clara. There were three men in the van. There was a fourth man in a car. They were taken out, searched and arrested. Now, uh, when the van was searched, the guard discovered a Mac-10 machine gun, uh, a shotgun and several rounds of ammunition. Uh, the four men the guard believe are uh, from Brazil, from South America, and they believe they were contracted, a contracted hit team uh, to, to come down to the Midlands from, from Dublin uh, and to carry out a shooting for a criminal gang which is involved in an ongoing feud there. Now the four men are being questioned in Garda stations in Tullamore and Port Leash. Uh, they're being detained under Section 30 so they could be held for a further uh, 48 hours. You've also been reporting that this could be about a relatively small drugs debt. Yeah, I mean, that's the belief. This is an ongoing feud between two criminal gangs in the Midlands, family-based criminal gangs, uh, and some of the members of those gangs are from the travelling community. Uh, and there have been a number of incidents over the last uh, last few months, uh, which the Gardaí believe all started over a drug debt, which could be as low uh, as €70. Euro. Um, now, there was a number of violent incidents, including assaults, stabbings. Uh, it escalated at one stage to a mass brawl uh, on, on, on the streets in a housing estate uh, in Tullamore where um, the public order unit had to be called in to quell tensions but the tensions have continued uh, and the Gardaí suspect that one one of the gangs uh, contracted these individuals. Now these individuals the Gardaí believe are Dublin based. Uh, they believe they've been living here for a while uh, that one of them has been here for about seven years, another one has been here for a year and that they have been involved in criminality. They didn't specifically fly in to carry out this contract hit but they do hire themselves out to criminals uh, to carry out shootings like this. Where and how they got access to such, such dangerous firearms as a machine gun uh, is still being uh, is still part of this investigation. Mm, now, in a, in a separate incident, a sum of money seized by the Gardaí after searches in Dublin and Meath. What can you tell us? Yeah, well, this money was uh, seized uh, in a car which was stopped in Collins Avenue in Dublin 9 uh, on uh, Monday night and also uh, seized in... Um, 
in a house uh, in Dublin, which was subsequently searched. Four hundred. Originally thought to be around four hundred and three hundred thousand, but the money had to be counted because it was all wrapped up in masking tape. It was in small denominations as well as uh, hundred euro notes, tens, twenties, fifties. So it was effectively the Garthy believe street money that was used to pay for drugs supplied. Uh, they spent all day yesterday at the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau counting this money, and now uh, they have reached a final total, which is over nine hundred thousand euro. So it's close to a million. Uh, they believe that the money was destined for a Dublin criminal who's living in Europe. He's uh, well known in the Netherlands as well as in Dublin. He had been uh, living here, but he left after the murder of Veronica Geern in 1996 and following the establishment of the Criminal Assets Bureau when uh, organised crime was under severe pressure uh, at the time. He has served time in prison in the Netherlands. He lives there with his Dutch Moroccan wife and his children. Uh, and he is a he he runs a, a Gardy say he runs a drug dealing network which operates under the radar and he hasn't been been involved in the Hutch Kinahan feud while much of the Garda resources the Garda and the public's attention has been focused on the ongoing feud and quite rightly because 18 people have been shot dead uh, this criminal network has been operating quietly under the radar uh, uh, trafficking uh, significant quantities of cocaine and cannabis all right, Paul, thank you very much. We'd better let you go and give Dino his breakfast. Paul Reynolds there, our crime correspondent. Tens of thousands of people are reported to have protested on the streets of Hong Kong again on Monday against a proposed new security law imposed by China. Opponents say it's a direct attempt to limit freedoms and to silence critics. The bill was put forward in China's parliament last week and it aims to ban treason, succession, sedition and subversion. We can talk now to the last governor of Hong Kong under British rule, Chris Patton. Chris Patton, you're very welcome to Morning Ireland and thank you. Nice to be on RTE again, yeah. Will this new law, do you worry, will it dismantle the special status that Hong Kong enjoys? Yes, I think it's the final onslaught by Beijing on, on the promises they made to ensure that Hong Kong um, would continue for 50 years after 1997 on the basis of what Deng Xiaoping had called one country, two systems with a high degree of autonomy, with the rule of law and all the freedoms that are associated with this. And I think that um, the thing that terrified um, the regime uh, in uh, China was that there are legislative council elections planned for September, uh, and I think they would, um, uh, if they went ahead fairly and freely, produce a pan-democrat majority. And I think that's something that um, China is very frightened of. Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, says it won't undermine the special status, the, the one country, two systems. So why are you convinced it will? Well, it's not just me that's convinced that it will. Um, there are millions of people in Hong Kong who are convinced uh, that it will. Um, I mean, to add to the list of, of things which uh, it will happen, the Ministry of State Security, which is China's equivalent of the KGB, um, with a, a long record of coercion and torture, is going to be able to operate in, uh, in Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong was, was made these promises about the rule of law and so on. It's not surprising that there are, um, I suppose, um, the equivalent of, of one or two quislings who are, who are prepared to go along with whatever China says. Um, but Hong Kong's reputation as a great, great open international city, um, in which there's always been, a, incidentally, a, a very notable um, Irish community, um, that's going to be trashed, I'm afraid. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's appalling. It's one reason why over 200... Um, um, distinguished parliamentarians from 23 countries have, uh, have, have signed um, an open statement about this. And I, I think there are one or two Irish names, and I hope more um, Irish policymakers and, and public figures uh, and uh, politicians will get in touch with an organization called Hong Kong Watch and add their names to the list. Um, it's also very important that Britain, which has particular responsibilities, um, though you wouldn't think so, um, given the uh, shenanigans, dramas of the last few days, Britain has particular responsibilities because we signed the treaty um, with, uh, with China. Um, and uh, uh, I hope that Boris Johnson, um, if he's got the time off from defending Mr. Cummings, um, will be able to raise the issue um, at the G7 meeting next month. 
I want to ask you about Dominic Cummings in a moment, but just on on Britain's, the United Kingdom's role and responsibilities, can it go one step further and offer uh, people who want to leave Hong Kong the right to live in Britain? Well, it's always been my position that those we gave what are called British national overseas passports to should be treated as generously as possible, including um, uh, the right of abode, particularly when, which will happen, um, they're they're targeted for political crimes. I mean, what what in a communist state does sedition mean? Um, What does subversion mean in a communist state? Um, What's actually happened is that um, Xi Jinping, who's broken his word again and again and again and can't conceivably be trusted. Um, Xi Jinping has taken the fact that um, the rest of the world is is um, uh, consumed with the importance of, f- of fighting this wretched um, pandemic um, in order to um, uh, muscle into Hong Kong and, and, and muscle into the South China Sea and threaten Taiwan and heaven knows what he's up to uh, in Xinjiang. Um, he's taken the fact that our attention is focused elsewhere to threaten um, all the things which liberal democracies really believe in. Um, he, he hates liberal democracies. It's one reason why he hates the things that are associated with liberal democracy in Hong Kong, like the right of free speech. Why did Hong Kong, why did Taiwan do so much better in dealing with the coronavirus um, than uh, China? One, because they had the experience of dealing with SARS, which again was hidden in the early stages by uh, China. Secondly, because they have a free press and because the press and the media were able to point out what was happening, were able to press for closing the border between Hong Kong and, uh, and uh, China, for example. So a, f- a free media, a free press is people like you. I don't mean to flatter you, but are really important to the functioning of a decent, open society. And that has been the basis for years of Hong Kong's success as a great international hub. I just want to ask you finally about Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson. You're a former chairman of the Conservative Party. There's a lot of public anger at what Dominic Cummings did and what Boris Johnson has said. A lot of people very angry over the sacrifices that they and their families have had to make in recent months. Do you believe Boris Johnson should have sacked him? Well, I I don't think that having looked at the press conference yesterday um, uh, that uh, many people will have been uh, impressed by the arguments or lack of them that were put forward. Uh, I'm not surprised that Mr. Johnson didn't sack him because um, a lot of people think that it's actually Cummings' government, that Cummings actually runs it. And what I'm more worried about are some of the decisions that have been taken by the government over dealing with the coronavirus, for example. There's a devastating report in the Sunday Times in London yesterday um, about the way the government have handled it late into dealing with it, much later than you, um, um, making a mess of testing and tracking and tracing, terrible mess made with, with uh, care homes and the elderly. Those are all big um, question marks over, over the decision making in Downing Street. And now this completely crazy idea of introducing a quarantine for people coming from other countries, including those which are doing much better than we are. Um, if there was a quarantine, it should have been done two months ago or two or six weeks ago. There's no point in doing it now. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us this morning. Chris Patton, the former governor, the last governor of Hong Kong under British rule. A blessing for frontline workers. Religious congregations of different denominations have recorded a protective hymn to thank those fighting against COVID-19. The project is called the Irish Blessing. It's part of an international Christian movement. Organisers hope it can go viral. Keen McCormack sent us this report. Be thou my vision. A hymn for frontline workers. Be Thou My Vision is sung here by Sherry Hazlett Gallon. She's upstairs in the Holy Trinity Church in Rathmines. The church is at the core of the Irish Blessing Initiative. Be 
Irish Blessing is part of an international movement where churches come together to bless frontline workers, those on the front line dealing with the coronavirus. An Irish take on a world phenomenon. It began in the United States about two months ago, and then a number of countries have picked this up and have had this collaborative effort to bless those dealing with the pandemic. Philip McKinley, a Dublin-based Church of Ireland ordinand, is one of the organisers. So we've taken what is a prayer of protection, the very famous hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And we have got 250 churches together, north, south, east and west, representing every county in the island. And we have sung together collectively this ancient, over 1,000-year-old hymn and prayer of protection for Ireland at this time. 250 versions of Be Thou My Vision were recorded and sent to organisers. And capturing this snapshot of actually Irish Christianity in 2020, and that is ranges from Orthodox churches to Catholic churches to independent evangelical, charismatic Pentecostal churches, a lot of new migrant-led churches. We've captured an enormous range, uh, and Christian organisations working within some of those spheres as well. The monks of Glen Stoll sent this version. While the Solid Rock Pentecostal Church in Dublin 8 submitted this one. Selected versions of the hymn will be edited together into a six-minute piece due to be launched this Sunday. Again, Philip McKinley. This is going to be launched on 31st of May, which is Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the church. It will be available on the Irish Blessing YouTube channel and also shareable on the Irish Blessing Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and www.theirishblessing.com. Be thou my battle, shield, sword for the fight. The Holy Trinity Church in Rathmines is one of the 250 congregations involved. Singer Sherry Hazelat Gallen, who we heard earlier, and we hear now singing this version of Be Thou My Vision, is the worship coordinator at the church. I love the idea of an all-inclusive worship where um, there are no, no walls, no borders and all are welcome to engage with the divine. Ultimately, the God is for everybody and that's, that's what my music says and that's what this project says too. Reverend Rob Jones, the Church of Ireland Rector at the Holy Trinity, holds a similar view. Being a part of something with all those people across the island that brings unity is really important. But also having the opportunity to say thank you to frontline workers, having the opportunity to pray a blessing of thankfulness over all those diverse people who've done so much in this pandemic is very important to me as a church leader to say thank you, but also to bless them and all they've done. Reverend Rob Jones ending that report by Keen McCormick. The Irish Blessing video will go live on YouTube and on social media on Sunday morning. More details from irishblessing.com. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.